70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, greetings from Hanin Saleh from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Happy 70th birthday, KBS World Radio. I wish the channel the best of luck in all its future endeavors. To tell you a little bit about myself, I fell in love with Korean culture as I started to tune in to KBS channels when I was 13 years old. You helped me understand Korea and the Korean culture better and I started to build a strong relationship with the country. Last year, I won an award from Yala K-pop, a K-pop contest hosted by KBS World Radio's Arabic service, and got to visit Korea for a performance. Guess who I got to meet there? The Arabic service staff members. They were such wonderful people and gave me the warmest welcome. I was so happy to meet them. They were the best out of all the people I met in Korea. Once again, happy birthday, KBS World Radio. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's Tuesday, the 7th of November, and welcome to another edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Hong j a n g o n The first cold wave alert of the season came into effect today, and Wednesday's forecast is set to be even colder. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. The ruling party's plan to incorporate Kimpo City into Seoul has become a hot-button issue in Korean politics over the last week. We take a closer look at the issue for our in-depth today. And coming up for Touch Basin's Hull, we'll be meeting the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of Asian Art to talk about the museum's relationship with Korean art and more. We begin today's Korea 24. A cold snap descended on the nation on Tuesday, with the season's first cold wave alerts issued for Seoul and the central inland areas. Wednesday is forecast to be even colder before temperatures climb back up on Thursday. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have in the studio with us Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English news service, Kim In-kyung. In-kyung, hello. Hello, c h a n g o So, i n g y o u n g just last Thursday, the weather agency said it was the warmest November ever. The daytime high in Seoul was 25.9 degrees Celsius and 29.1 degrees in Gangneung, a record for November. Many people were even seen wearing short sleeves around the country. Right. But after heavy downpours on Monday, Tuesday morning was met with strong cold winds that brought early winter temperatures So what's the reason for this sudden change in weather? Well, according to the Korea Meteorological Administration, a cold upper-level cyclone approached the country from the northwest of the Korean peninsula after Monday's rains, which was also coupled with some of the strongest winds to hit the nation in November. 
This morning, Cheolon in Gangwon province claimed the coldest temperature in the country at negative 6.6 degrees, while the temperature in Seoul was 3.8 degrees. The early winter temperatures lasted through midday, with daytime temperatures in Seoul, Daejeon and Cheongju reaching 10 degrees, Gwangju hitting 14 degrees and Daegu 15 degrees. So what does the weather look like for Wednesday? Unfortunately, Wednesday is forecast to be even colder, with morning temperatures expected to be 2 to 5 degrees lower than Tuesdays. Seoul and Daejeon face lows of 2 degrees that will feel even more brisk due to the wind chill. The KMS said people who are vulnerable to the cold, such as the elderly, are advised to refrain from going out as much as possible, while caution was advised for drivers with the possibility of black ice due to rain freezing over. The sudden cold snap is expected to peak on Wednesday before temperatures climb back up on Thursday, but the weather agency forecasts that the winter-like weather will return over the weekend. Yes, it did feel like fall was coming late this year, but it has descended upon us very abruptly now. Let's shift over to domestic political news. The Democratic Party is set to convene a general meeting of lawmakers on Wednesday. This is to discuss impeaching the head of the state broadcasting watchdog and the justice minister. Can you tell us more? Where does this come from? Well, responding to press questions on Tuesday, DP floor spokesperson Choi Hyeong said Korea Communications Commission Chair Lee dong and Justice Minister Han Dong-hun were being considered for impeachment. This came after DP chief spokesperson Kwon Til-sung told reporters on Monday that there had been talks within the party about impeaching the KCC chief and that the party could submit a related motion in Thursday's plenary session. The main opposition has been pressuring it to step down after a court granted an injunction against the KCC suspension of the former chief of the Foundation for Broadcast Culture, which is a major shareholder of public broadcaster MBC. The DPS accused the justice minister of publicizing facts of suspended, suspected crimes while calling for parliamentary consent for the pre-trial detention of DP chief Lee Jae-myung of alleged corruption. And how has the ruling People Power Party reacted? PPP floor leader Yoon Jae-ok said impeachments can be pursued only when there is a clear violation of the law and that the BP has abused impeachments for political gain and to pressure the government. Talking of the PPP, the ruling party officially launched a committee to push for the incorporation of Kimpo into Seoul. Can you tell us more about the New City Project Special Committee? The committee, which is headed by five five-term lawmaker Cho Kyung-tae, said that it would make headway in the plan, including a proposal for legislation before the end of the year. Cho hinted that the Mega Seoul initiative could incorporate more than one city, remarking that as many as four may be included. During his opening remarks, Cho said that he will do his best to ensure that Seoul serves as a catalyst to create a three-axis megacity cluster in Seoul, Busan and Gwangju. Yes, it should be noted that the mayors of Seoul and Incheon and the governor of Gyeonggi province will meet next Thursday to discuss the matter as the DP has been criticising the move as a ploy by the PPP to win votes ahead of the general elections next year. Uh, the Gyeonggi governor Kim dong and Incheon mayor Yu Jong-bok have expressed their opposition to the proposal, while Seoul Mayor Oh Se-hoon has been muted. Uh, we'll be talking more about this issue for our in-depth today, so our listeners should stay tuned for that. Let's move on now to international news. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, made remarks on South Korea before departing from Ankara, Turkey on Monday after travelling to the Middle East. So what did he say? 
Blinken said that his upcoming visit to South Korea and Japan is evidence of Washington's continuing involvement and interest in the Indo-Pacific and other regions, even while focusing on the crisis in the Gaza Strip. He's now in Tokyo to attend the group of seven foreign ministers meeting and is set to make a two-day trip to South Korea on Wednesday. Right, and what's on the agenda for the G7 foreign ministers meeting? The war between Israel and Hamas will top their discussions at a working dinner on Tuesday. Earlier in the day, Japan's foreign minister Yoko Kamikawa told a press briefing that she would refrain from predicting whether the ministers can reach agreements on a temporary ceasefire for humanitarian purposes at the meeting. On the second day, on Wednesday, the foreign ministers are expected to discuss the war in Ukraine as well as in the Pacific situation. Let's circle back to a domestic headline now. The government has decided to rescind the ban on disposable paper cups in restaurants. Can you tell us more? The Environment Ministry announced the decision on Tuesday while also indefinitely suspending a crackdown on the use of plastic straws in cafes and plastic bags in convenience stores. The government explained that it considered the burden on small business owners amid high inflation and high interest rates. The regulations on disposable products were implemented in November 24th of last year with a one-year grace period. The Environment Ministry said it will instead seek to encourage the use of reusable cups and expanded recycling as an alternative to an outright ban on disposable cups. And finally, an outdoor delivery robot service will be tested behind the COEX complex from November to December. That's right. Gangnam District Chief Chob Songmyung announced on, Wednesday, on Tuesday that Ua Brothers, which runs the delivery company Pedal Minjo, will lead the project. The project will operate both indoor and outdoor delivery robots. The, phase, the first phase of the project with indoor delivery robots was introduced on October 31st of last year, offering deliveries by robots traveling from COEX to the elevators of the neighboring trade tower offices, with nine robots currently in service. That's where we wrap up our news briefing today. Thank you for bringing us those headlines. Thank you. Kim Ki-hyun, the head of the ruling People Power Party, made a surprise announcement last week when he said that the party will pursue the incorporation of Kimpo City in Gyeonggi province into the adjacent capital city of Seoul. Kim revealed the plan during a meeting on providing transportation measures for new towns around the Seoul metro area. While there were some voices, especially in Kimpo, who welcomed the move, others blasted the plan, saying that it was simply a political manoeuvre to try and garner votes for next year's general elections. To delve into this issue in more detail today, we have joining us in the studio Yi Jongju, a reporter for the Korea Herald, who's been closely following this issue. Ms. Yi, hello and welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for welcoming. So for our global audience who may not be familiar with the local geography and its history, can you briefly give us an introduction to the satellite city of Kimpo, where it's located exactly, and its uh, geographical significance? So Kimpo is a city that is a part of Gyeonggi province, and it borders northwestern Seoul and has a population of up to 514,000. Um, and this is of data presented by Kimpo in August. And this stretches for around 276.6 square kilometers, which is almost about a half of Seoul's total land area. And this is which 
is around 605.2 square kilometers. Uh, Gimpo is very close to Seoul, and it's literally just one borderline away. And there are several subway lines and public bus lines that run through Seoul, and they are also connected to Gimpo. And quite a number of Gimpo citizens travel to and from Seoul while residing in Gimpo to either go to school or to go to work. And according to Statistics Korea's data in 2020, around 64,000 Gimpo residents travel to and from Seoul for work and education purposes. Purposes, and this accounts for about 12.7% of Kimpo's total population. Right, so Kimpo, just west of Seoul, and what's technically bordering Seoul, only a small part of the city border really uh, is right. connected to Seoul. On a map, it looks like a large mushroom sprouting out from Seoul, or perhaps uh, some people have said it looks like a, a hammer or an umbrella. Yeah, that's so right. So aesthetically, it would look a bit odd to attach Kimport to Seoul as well. But putting mm-hmm. that to one side, the PPP has still proposed this idea. Can you walk us through the PPP's plan to incorporate Kimport into Seoul, where it's come from and why the PPP is trying to push ahead with it? So what the PPP has been saying is that there is a need to incorporate Seoul's neighboring cities like Kimpo into Seoul, saying that Seoul needs a size upgrade to cater to its large population. And so to quote what the PPP's party leader Kim Gi-hyun said on October 31st, uh, he said that Seoul's total land area is much smaller compared to its population, unlike other major cities like London, New York and Berlin. And so how the PPP is aiming to push through their plan is by passing a special law called the Mega Seoul Special Law. And by passing this law, it would significantly reduce the time needed to make this huge administrative change because uh, proposals for administrative district reforms like this can also be initiated by uh, municipalities or the central government and then passed on to the legislature. But this actually requires a considerable amount of time. But if the PPP manages to pass this law to the National Assembly, Kimpo can be incorporated into Seoul just with Kimpo's agreement and it doesn't even need Seoul or the Gyeonggi Provinces uh, agreement at all. And so as of now, the PPP formed a special committee uh, dedicated to making this special law and held its first meeting today to work on the said special law. And they gathered also, and uh, they also need to gather some public opinion made by Kimpo and other uh, neighboring cities of Seoul on incorporating into Seoul. Right, so it's this move towards the idea of mega Seoul or mm-hmm. mega cities uh, to essentially match with other global cities, other global leading cities around the world, like London, New York, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Now, while the main opposition Democratic Party have not entirely ruled out this idea, they have still blasted the PPP for coming up with this plan. Can you tell us a bit more about what the DP stance on this proposal? So the Democratic Party has also been very careful in terms of laying out its stance. So they haven't clearly said whether they are for or against the PPP laying out a special law. However, the Democratic Party's representatives of Kim Po, Kim Ji-young, and Park Sang-hyuk, they held a press conference on Sunday, and they said that the PPP's recent plan was only made to secure votes for the general elections next year. Um, actually, during the general elections last year, um, the P- the Kimpo matters to the PPP a lot because uh, they lost to the Democratic Party by an overwhelming majority because the Democratic Party won about 51 seats out of 59, and here the PPP only won about seven. And this is also why some experts are saying that the PPP needs 
this ultimate card to guarantee their success in the city. Mm. And so during this specific press conference that I mentioned previously, they further criticized the PPPP by saying that if the city is incorporated into Seoul, the authority of Kimpo as a special city, which it earned this year for surpassing 500,000 for its total population, it will be reduced to just being another autonomous district under Seoul. And they further stated that Kimpo will lose its jurisdiction over urban planning and its budget will be cut by hundreds of millions, billions of won. But the Democratic Party, since it has been pretty careful in terms of laying out their stance clearly. Uh, the Democratic Party leader, Lee Jae-myung, also hasn't really expressed his opinions clearly regarding the matter, and he has only said that big administrative decisions like this should be made clearly. Right. So you said the DP have been cagey about rejecting this idea outright. Mm-hmm. Why have they been re- not been able to reject it entirely? What potentially does it gain or lose by supporting this idea? So the Democratic Party's political loss would be that if the PPP proposes a perfect special law that many citizens of Kimpo agree on enough to give them the overwhelming majority of winning the votes during next year's general elections, the opposing party may have to face some disappointing results during the general elections itself. But there is also a way in which the DP can overturn the play into giving them the political win. So like I said before, since Kimpo is located on the northwestern borders of Seoul, there has been arguments regarding public transportation access for Kimpo citizens coming into Seoul several times in the political sphere for a while. Um, this includes the extension of Seoul's Line Number 5 subway lines uh, from Panghua in Gangsogu, Western Seoul to Kimpo. This was actually first initiated by Kimpo in 2003, and this was raised again by Seoul in 2018, but this was never really put in motion due to political disagreements. So if the DP manages to provide further details regarding this matter and a tangible solutions to the city's public transportation issues, then the DP might have a chance at grasping a political win. Right, so both parties are looking at this issue very sensitively because of next year's general elections, which means uh, that what's important is the public's opinion on this matter, essentially, their votes especially, uh, especially those living in Kimpo. So what do the residents of Kimpo actually think about this? What do they say about the plan to incorporate Kimpo into Seoul? The citizens of Kimpo have been quite torn apart regarding the incorporation. Um, so today, the civic group People Power, they criticized the PPP during their press conference in front of Kimpo City Hall. And they said that the party's plan to incorporate Kimpo into Seoul is a plan that extremely relies on Seoul and abandons the beliefs, the philosophy and the identity that makes up Kimpo itself. And that the change will only cause a surge in real estate prices in Kimpo, which is another problem that some citizens have to face in Kimpo, right? But however, other civic groups like Kimpo Komdan Citizen Solidarity and Kimpo City Center Federation, they welcomed the PPP's new plan by saying that once Kimpo is incorporated into Seoul, school districts will be renewed, giving a chance for some Kimpo citizens to go to school in Seoul, and problems regarding public transportation will be eased. They also said that Kimpo's worth will also increase as it becomes a part of the capital city. Right. And when we say worth, we essentially mean real estate uh, value as well, of course. Uh, As soon as this idea came to the surface, though, there were immediately questions asked about other cities and regions surrounding Seoul, whether they could be included in this mega Seoul plan as well. Where do the citizens and mayors of other cities adjacent to the capital stand on this issue? 
So there has been talks in regard to incorporating other cities adjacent to Seoul, and these cities are Guri, Gwangmyeong, Hanam, Gwacheon, Seongnam, and Goyang. And not all mayors associated with these cities have expressed their stances yet, but Guri Mayor Baek Kyunghyun has expressed his support during a press conference last Thursday on incorporating Guri into Seoul, saying that Guri will be able to develop further and ease its problems regarding transportation after the integration. Uh, Goyang's Mayor Lee Dong-hwan, he said that... Um, um, integrating Seoul is worth considering if, um, is, if it is what the people of Koyang want. But to look at what the adjacent city's citizens have been saying, according to a real meter survey of 503 people over the age of 18 nationwide on November 1st, 58.6% of respondents responded that they were against cities adjacent to Seoul integrating to the capital city. Just among the respondents living in Incheon and Gyeonggi province, which is the region that is the closest to Seoul, 65.8% of respondents said that they were against the integration. And this suggests that perhaps the citizens residing in the cities adjacent to Seoul may not agree completely to integrate into the integration. Mm. Um, the survey commissioned by uh, this, the survey was actually commissioned by Energy Economic News and this had a confidence level of 95% with a margin of error of plus or minus 4.4 percentage points. Right. We've talked about the citizens in the surrounding cities, but what about the citizens of Seoul, where this also will affect them? What do they think about this issue? Are they open to welcoming more cities into the capital? So according to the same poll that I mentioned that was commissioned by Energy Economic News, uh, 32.6% of Seoul citizens have said that they are for the integration of cities adjacent to the capital, while 60.6% said that they were against it. Mm. And so Seoul Mayor Oh Se-hun has also said that incorporating Kimpo into Seoul should be approached in a more careful manner after Oh's meeting with Kimpo Mayor Kim Byung-soo uh, la- yesterday. Oh said that it's too early to say anything specifically on whether integrating Kimpo into Seoul will be beneficial to the capital without any in-depth research and analysis. And he also said that the city will look into the matter for a certain amount of time. So during this meeting, the two city mayors agreed to launch a joint uh, research panel on including Kimpo into Seoul and Oh also separately stated that the city government plans to launch a separate task force to conduct a comprehensive study on the inclusion of Kimpo and other adjacent cities into the capital. Right, so this whole mayor seems to be putting a little bit of the brakes on this move by the party uh, to incorporate Kimpo into Seoul. But yes, and public surveys seem to suggest that uh, the public are largely uh, against it. So that's the immediate reaction anyway, since uh, this is a new policy that was announced only last week. So how do you think this issue will pan out then? What is the legislative and administrative process for this issue down the road. You said it was technically easy if the National Assembly pushes it through, but still I'm guessing there are a lot of moving parts that need Mm -hmm. to be considered. That's right. So what we can say for now is that it's really at the beginning process, like you said. And so... A lot of the city governments and the PPP must make their moves in terms of making sure that this passes in the way they want it to be. And so the PPP special committee on the new city project, uh, they propose that by December, the committee will come up with a special bill or a regular bill to make the mega soul special law into reality. To attain this goal, the special committee will meet with relevant ministries and experts to make visits to cities that have expressed a desire to become part of Seoul and to gather their opinions as well. For Kimpo and other adjacent cities to Seoul, they must work on continuously persuading the capital on why the integration will be beneficial for Seoul and also persuade the citizens as 
as to why the integration will be so beneficial. Um, it's honestly early to clearly say whether the integration will be made for sure on my behalf, but if the PPP really wishes to make this work in their benefit, they should also work to turn the opinions around of those who aren't too sure of the integration, as there were quite a majority from the polls that I shared uh, previously. Right, so there's a long road, long way to go, it seems. The PPP have raised this issue now, though, so we'll see if they do manage to make progress on this idea, especially uh, before the general elections next April. That's where we're going to leave it for today. We've been speaking to reporter Lee Jong-ju from The Korea Herald. Thank you for walking us through this issue today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index shed 58.41 points, or 2.33% on Tuesday, to close the day at 2,443.96. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 15.08 points, or 1.8%, to close at 824.37. On the foreign exchange, the local currency fell 10.61 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,307.91. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next, we have in the studio with us a contributor, Diane Yu, which means it's time now for Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. Diane, hello. It's great to see you again. Hello, Jango. So what do you have for us first? Many in Korea have been reading about a shocking incident that you usually only see in movies. A fugitive who had been on the run for three days has been finally caught. 36-year-old Kim Gil-su ran away while receiving hospital treatment after being detained at the Seoul Detention Center on charges of special robbery. And on, on the third day of his escape, Kim was arrested again on Monday night and taken to the police station. Right, so he had been on the run since Saturday, Mm -hmm. but the search had been difficult as he changed his clothes and even got a haircut uh, using cash. So where did they eventually find him then? Kim was arrested in Ujeongbu City, Gyeonggi Province, at around 9.24 p.m. He was trying to make a call at a phone booth to a female acquaintance. Then he was interrogated at Ujeongbu Police Station. Few hours, a few hours later, at 11.52 p.m., he was finally handed over to the Anyang Dongan Police Station. At that time, he was wearing a black fall jumper and black pants with sneakers, which were identical to what he was wearing when he was last captured on a surveillance camera. And his hair appeared to be neatly cut as it was found during the search that he stopped by a hair salon to get a haircut. Yes, the fact that he managed to escape capture for three days and Mm. even got a change of clothes and a haircut... Mm -hmm. Uh, There were reports that someone had helped Kim, right? Right. Someone had paid Kim's taxi fare and given him 100,000 won in cash. But when the reporters asked whether he had planned for the escape and had an accomplice or not, he denied them and said no. So how did he manage to escape in the first place? What happened exactly? So on September 11th, Kim met a man in his 30s through social media, offering to exchange money without a commission. Afterward, he allegedly pepper sprayed the man carrying a money bag containing 740 million won and took it away. That's about 570,000 U.S. dollars. It's believed that he committed the crime to pay off gambling debts. After getting caught by the police on October 30th, Kim swallowed about five centimeters of a plastic spoon handle while eating in a police detention cell. 
Accordingly, while receiving treatment at Hallim University Sacred Heart Hospital in Dongan District, Anyang City, he fled at around 6.20 a.m. last Saturday. Right, so just to explain a bit further, that piece of plastic spoon that he swallowed is important because it supposedly caused abdominal pain, which right. is why the police had taken him to hospital to be treated. And it was there mm-hmm. that the police uncuffed him so he could go to the bathroom and mm-hmm. wash his face. But that was when he escaped. Yeah. So there will be questions asked about how the police could have let this happen. But uh, at least he was caught and no one was hurt in the process. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quite a remarkable story indeed. Mm. Let's uh, move on to our next story now. What do you have for us? If you had bought a phone in Korea, you might have noticed that there's no way for you to turn off the camera shutter sound while in the country. Well, this is because it's regulated by the law. The law is placed to prevent anyone from secretly taking illegal photos of others. However, a survey has found that the majority of participants believe that the measure is not that effective. Yes, even some phones bought overseas produce the shutter sound when using a local SIM card or location services. Mm -hmm. So it's the same in Japan as well, I understand. And it was introduced to prevent voyeuristic photos being taken of strangers, Mm -hmm. uh, to put it simply. But a local survey you're saying, has shown that people are sceptical of its effectiveness then? Yeah, from October 23rd to last Sunday, the Anti-Corruption and Civil Rights Commission asked for the public's opinion on the autonomy of camera sound settings. And more than 89% of the 3,851 participants said that turning on and off the camera sound should be a choice. And more than 85% of respondents said they had experienced discomfort due to the sound of their cell phone's camera. The commission plans to to deliver the survey results to the Telecommunications Technology Association, or TTA, in short. Yes, the shutter sound has been in effect for nearly a decade now, but people have been voicing their concerns about the efficacy, right? Yes, the standard for the camera sound was first set through the TTA in 2004 and is still maintained to this day after some revisions. But now with the advancement of Zoom camera technology and the emergence of silent camera applications, it has been pointed out that the law is not effective and only causes inconvenience. There are times when filming is necessary in a quiet environment, but users say that the shutter sound is just too loud and disruptive. Another thing is that there are no regulations on people who buy their phones overseas, which further reduces the effectiveness of the law. I see. So because workarounds have gotten easier, it's perhaps not serving its original purpose, and instead it's just inconveniencing regular people. It does sound like there is a debate that needs to be had, Mm -hmm. but sadly as well, we should note the scourge of people still taking unsolicited unsolicited uh, lewd photos still exist so yes right. it does need to be carefully considered i would mm-hmm. say let's continue on to our final story of the day now what do you have for us Art lovers in New York, especially those who are interested in Korean art, will be glad to hear the story. The Metropolitan Museum of Art, or the Met for short, located in New York's Upper East Side, has opened its doors on Tuesday local time with an exhibition called Lineages, Korean Art at the Met. The exhibition presents 30 works of art and artifacts from the 12th century to the 2000s to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the museum's Korean gallery. And this is all with the support from Korea's Ministry of Culture, Sports and Tourism. 
Sounds great. Tell us uh, more about the exhibition. What kind of work uh, would the visitors be able to enjoy? The exhibition is going to run through October 20th next year and includes works acquired by the museum over the last 25 years, as well as some sent by Korea's art galleries and museums to share with visitors in New York. Starting with the pillar of Korean contemporary paintings, Hoseok's People Piece, at the entrance to the exhibition, the artworks are divided into four intertwined themes, including lines, peoples, places, and things. The works of the world-renowned Korean monochrome painters Lee Woo-han and Yoon Hyung-gun are also on display. However, the Met did not focus only on abstract and monochromatic paintings, but seemed to have taken a lot of consideration to show as many diverse Korean art pieces as possible, even in a confined exhibition place. And I understand the pieces were placed with a specific intention, right? Yes, the Met explained that it designed the flow of the exhibition meticulously to show the impact of the rapid and comprehensive social changes experienced by Korean society in the 20th century. In addition, the Met mixed the old art pieces previously exhibited by the Korean gallery with new contemporary Korean art pieces and explained that this is also an exhibition method to broadly show the history of the country's art. So for those of you who are in that area, you can definitely check it out as it's not easy to get a chance to see all those iconic pieces from each era in one place. Yes, it's quite fitting that we're talking about this today as well, because we have an interview with the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of Asian Art to talk about Mm. Korean art and uh, the explosion of uh, Korean art in the art world at the moment as well. So, yes, it's interesting that uh, the Met is also uh, doing something as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for today's uh, Korea Trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll talk to you next time. See you next time. Next up, it's Touch Base in Seoul, and this is a pre-recorded interview from October 18th when our guest was in town. In 1923, the National Museum of Asian Art became the Smithsonian's first art museum on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And over the past century, the museum has curated and developed one of the most significant Asian art collections. It's now home to more than 46,000 artworks, 5,400 of which have been collected since 2018 when Chase Robinson took the helm of the museum as its director. During that time, he has taken a growing interest in Korean art as well, having visited the country multiple times. And this year, the museum also announced an endowed curatorial position in Korean art and culture uh, that it will be established for the first time as well. He's back in Korea once again, and he stopped by KBS today to talk to us for this week's Touch Basins Hall. He's with us now, Mr. Robinson. Hello, and thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Can you first uh, tell us about what you've been doing in Korea? Well, we have been busy. It's uh, a pleasure to return to Seoul. I was here, I think, as few as nine or ten months ago. We've been terribly busy in various meetings, but we have had the opportunity to leave Seoul once. We went to Cheongju to the museum. Mm -hmm. And the reason we went to that museum on Sunday, I arrived on Saturday night, was to... um, well, it's a lovely museum, as you'll probably know, built into the to the side of the mountain, but also because they're showing right now um, the Egoni collection, and Fine, we were course. very, very keen 
to uh, to see how they're presenting that material. So we spent a lovely day. And then, of course, we visited various museums. We've been to the National Museum. We've been to the Liam. We've been to the Museum of Modern Contemporary Art. We did pay our respects to the Korea Foundation, which I should say is very generously supporting our efforts to establish that first ever curatorial position. So it's been a great pleasure. So, yes, I understand that the Korean art scene has really flourished in recent years as well, uh, particularly internationally. Have you seen that uh, change over the years as you've been coming to Korea? I have. I remember coming for the first time about 15 years ago. And uh, of course, many of the museums were in place, but they're now prospering. I think what's really changed is the gallery scene. You'll be aware that Freeze was here recently. So there's an energy about contemporary art. I think there's also a sophistication in terms of the work that the museums are doing. And there's a willingness on our part as well as their part to work together. And so that's what what makes returning to, to Seoul really a pleasure is to, is to build the relationships that we've begun to build and to seek ways of collaborating together. Okay, as I mentioned at the start, you are the director of the National Museum of Asian Art. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the museum? It's marking its 100th anniversary this year. We opened our doors on May 9th, 1923. Um... As I like to say, we opened our doors at the beginning of what, in retrospect, is sometimes called the American century. And we turned 100 at a moment in which the world is a very different place, in which um, political capital and financial capital and creative capital is much more distributed. And Seoul is a wonderful example of that. So we have um, the great good fortune of being America's first national art museum. And we got our start with a collection assembled by an American industrialist named Charles Lang Freer, who by the time of his death in 1919 had amassed what was then and probably will always be the greatest collection of Asian art. So we started off with about 9,500 pieces. Mm. As you said in the introduction, we're now at 46 or 47,000 pieces. And we have a, a really broad and I think interesting portfolio, not just of collections and exhibitions, but programming. A single example, the Saturday before I left, we celebrated Chuseok for the first time at the museum. Mm. Um, It was a great pleasure. We had something like 5,500 people who came to uh, become acquainted, for the most part, for the first time with uh, that terribly important uh, Korean festival. So we had programming, we had uh, cooking demonstrations, we had a photo booth, we had gallery tours, we had a charge table, we had lots of different things so that our visitors could get a taste, literal and figurative, of Korean culture. Wow, so it's clear that the museum is really doing a lot to try and help people learn more about Korea and Korean culture and Korean art. Can you tell us more about that connection the museum has had with uh, Korea and the Korea collection that the museum has? Well, we're very fortunate because part of that original gift to the museum, those 9,500 pieces, was really an extraordinary uh, collection of Korean ceramics. And so from our start, from the, the moment that the museum was opened in 1923, we've had a, a gallery devoted to, to Korean art. We also have, a, we have three exceptionally important Goryeo paintings, three of only 16, for instance, that exist in the United States. Mm. 
So we now have a collection which is almost 800 pieces in Korean, growing all of the time. Um, and I think the the relationship that museums had with uh, with Korea and with Korean institutions, although longstanding, has really blossomed in the last three or four years in particular. We're very fortunate, very grateful to the Ministry of Culture, Sports, and Tourism for supporting our work. As I said, the Korea Foundation has been uh, instrumental in supporting our efforts to appoint that first-ever Korean curator. We work closely with the Korea Cultural Center, and we do a variety of exhibitions, loan shows. We work closely with the National Museum. Um, but we've also done some fun events, such as uh, worked with the Korean Cultural Center and did a small um, fashion show last summer. Mm. So we'll be doing more now that we have um, a memorandum of understanding that we signed uh, in the spring. The then Minister of Culture paid us a visit, the director of the museum, but also uh, the First Lady of Korea, whom I had the great pleasure of showing around our galleries. Wow, so it's seems like it's been an incredibly, particularly busy year this year then, uh, related to the museum and uh, the collaboration that the museum is having with Korea. Uh, Let's talk more about that curatorial position. As we said, it's the first time uh, that the museum is having uh, a position like this, the first specialist in the field of Korean art and culture. Can you tell us more about it? Well, I look forward to telling you more and more. We're very close to... uh to finding uh, just the right candidate for the position. Mm. I think what's significant is it's typical, and understandably so, uh, for positions to be framed in art museums as curatorial positions Mm. in art. But we quite quite deliberately framed this as um, Korean art and culture because we're interested not only in expanding our collection, not only in continuing to build those collaborations with with museums and institutions here in Korea. But we're also looking for leadership to help us build out that programming because, as you'll know, increasingly in art museums, we're very keen to reach new audiences. Mm. We're keen to reach young audiences. We're keen to reach audiences that consist of that growing uh, Asian-American community that is not only in Washington, D.C., but nationally. So leadership in that curatorial position will allow us to to do the kind of work that we've begun, but we'll really be able to advance it. Especially at a time when Korean culture is really spreading like wildfire, especially among uh, younger people at the moment. It's incredible to watch. It's immensely popular, and um, we we celebrated our—the real culmination of our centennial celebrations took place in May— and we did some important exhibitions and, and a variety of programming, a gala, all sorts of fun that we had. But I think if you were to ask any of my colleagues, they would uh, they would say that the height of it was a performance um, given by Eric Nam, right? Who came to the came to the museum and performed for us. So. And that was for the centennial show. It was. Yes, uh, I saw that story as well. Uh, He's a great ambassador uh, for Korean culture, uh, definitely, at the moment, uh, just with his global popularity as well. He's a great ambassador. He, um, he, he and his, his colleagues paid a visit to the museum. He is um, not just a great ambassador for, for Korea, but I think uh, extremely reflective and, and, and an articulate uh, and concerned spokesman for for mental health and depression and and mm. and, and so he's he 's really a remarkable person, and we were so privileged to 
to work with him. Meanwhile, uh, another recent announcement was that the National Museum of Korea has designated uh, six museums in five countries where they aim to promote Korean art and culture. Uh, and of course, one of them was the Smithsonian's National uh, Museum of Asian Art. Can you tell us more about that? Delighted to have entered into that uh, agreement. We'll be doing a variety of things. Um, one is expanding, enhancing and expanding the gallery presence in our museum devoted to, to Korean art. Another is we'll be uh, building exchange programs and, and sending staff here and, and, uh, and having staff from Korea come to our museum. Of course, we're going to be building out the programming that we've begun. So it provides uh, the, the, the kind of framework and, and support so that activities, which sometimes in the museum world can be a sporadic or ad hoc, are really sustained over the life of the four or five year grant. So it's a, it's a wonderful, I think, um, endorsement of the work that we've done, but at the same time promises the kind of collaboration where we can learn, and this is something that I'd really like to emphasize, as much from our Korean colleagues as they can learn from us. And you mentioned the MOU that was signed earlier this year as well. The signing ceremony, as you said, was attended by uh, First Lady Kim Gani, the uh, then Minister for Culture, Sports and Tourism, Park Bo-gyun. Can you tell us a bit more about what this MOU means as well? Well, what it, that essentially does is it provides an umbrella under which the activities that I just described can take place. Mm. So it provides that institution-to-institution framework so that when uh, colleagues um, at the National Museum here or um, at any other uh, museum here wish to collaborate with us, for instance, for a joint exhibition or for a staff exchange, we can realize those plans quickly. We can, the, the MOU allows us to facilitate those plans and, and make them happen. So it seems there's a lot going on, as I said, when it comes to uh, Korean art and the museum. It's an exciting time. Looking ahead then, what are the future goals for the museum when it comes to Korean art, especially under your leadership? As you've said, uh, you've been in the position since 2018. So that time, Korean art has really uh, exploded, as you said. So what do you hope to uh, achieve? What do you hope to see? Well, I should say that I think things would have moved even faster had there not been that interruption of a pandemic, which mm. did slow us down. Mm. Um, but I think uh, there is, as you've been saying, uh, a real appetite on the part of the American public and international visitors to the Smithsonian to learn more about about Korean culture in general. I think um, Korean contemporary Korean art in particular is is an area in which uh, we'll be expanding. I should say that just 10 or 12 days ago, we opened an, uh, an exhibition by the artist Park Chang-young. And in the spring, we'll also be opening uh, a one-piece exhibition by De Hossa. So we're becoming more active in contemporary uh, um, Korean art. And I think that's an area where we can grow in particular. But at the same time, on the programming side, we got that first start with a wonderful Chuseok celebration, we'll be doing much more of that. So I think it's really a question of of expanding our, our portfolio of activity, but at the same time, building those relationships with museums and institutions here so we can be, we can be helpful to their efforts to raise their visibility mm. and to popularize uh, Korean culture more generally. We have a very international 
visitor uh, profile. About 25 to 30 million visitors come to the Smithsonian every year. Um, not all of them have the opportunity to come to Seoul. So mm. it's our way of bringing a little bit of Seoul to them. A win-win situation, as Koreans like to say. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we wish you luck on your endeavours and hope that uh, collaboration with Korea continues to grow and flourish for uh, both our sake and yours as well. Uh, that's all for Touch Basin's Hole this week. We'll be speaking to Chase Robinson, the director for the Smithsonian's National Museum of Asian Art. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you. I'm cellist Saul Daniel Kim, and you are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. It's our final segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, Richard Larkin, our staff editor. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay. So what's the first article that caught your eye for tomorrow? Well, it's an interesting story that spans a decade. Uh, right now at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, there is a pagoda-shaped Serira reliquary from the Goryeo era. I had to do a little research here. A reliquary is the name of a container and Serira are the beads that come from the remains of a Buddhist monk after they have been cremated. Mm. And 10 years ago, there were talks to bring the artifacts back to Korea, but the talks fell through at the time. But it seems like after a decade, talks have resumed. That's according to Kim Hae-yeon's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald. Okay, so before we talk more about the talks and which parties are involved, mm. does the article explain how the artifact ended up in the museum in Boston. It does. So back in 1939, the museum acquired the artifact through a Japanese art dealer. That's kind of where the explanation ends. No one knows how the art dealer got the items in the first place. Okay. Now, fast forward to 2003. That's when the move to try and bring back the item began. But it wasn't until 2009 that the museum asked if South Korea would accept just the Sarira without the container. The Cultural Heritage Administration refused, saying that both items together hold cultural significance. But it seems like there are two parties in Korea that are trying to bring back the items and they are kind of clashing with each other. Right, so I presume the Cultural Heritage Administration is one of the parties. Yes. Who's the other? The article mentions that his name is Himun. He is a former Buddhist monk and the leader of a non-profit civic group dedicated to repatriating cultural heritage. He told the writer of this article that discussions need to resume. He is saying that the CHA failed to bring back the artefacts and felt that they are religious artefacts before cultural artefacts. He added that the government dictating how and in what form Buddhist relics should be returned is not desirable. So he has been in talks with the museum for the past several months. Okay, so what has the CHA said regarding the artefacts and uh, Hemun's claims? It said that their return is a difficult issue because it has not confirmed whether they were stolen or smuggled out of Korea. So the administration has been approaching the issue carefully. It is also said that the South Korean First Lady Kim Gani resumed talks in April of this year when she visited the museum. This was during President Yoon Suk-yeol's state visit in the US. So yeah, uh, both parties are looking at bringing the artefacts but uh, back to Korea, but... 
they're doing it in different ways. Right. So it seems like the situation remains unresolved yes. as of now. And it seems like the two parties need to get on the same page right. somehow soon as well. But it is an interesting situation. Mm. And uh, perhaps we should keep tabs on it uh, moving forward as well. Sure. Let's continue on now to another article that you found in tomorrow's newspapers. Next is Kwak Miyu's article in the culture section of the Korea Times. The article seems to suggest that Korean musical theatre is starting to have a presence internationally. That's because the Korean musical La Art Rest, pardon my bad French, had a reading <laughs> in New York late last month as part of the annual K-Musical Producers Workshop. This is an event that is co-organised by the Business of Broadway and the Korea Arts Management Service. Right, so this is a Korean musical. Yes. The title is Lat Rest, yes. which is uh, French. Mm-hmm. Forgive my bad French as well. <laughs> but uh, can you walk us through what this musical is about? Sure. So it's about three prominent figures who helped shape Korea's modern culture. They are artist Kim Hyang An, her first husband Yi Sang, who is said to be a pioneer of modern Korean literature, mm. and her second husband Kim Won Ki, who we have talked about on the show before for being a trailblazer of Korean monochrome painting. The musical debuted in Seoul, and its two runs have been very successful. Well, the premise and the character is definitely interesting to Korean audiences. Mm. The question, I guess, would be, will this musical attract audiences overseas, such as in New York? That was what the producer of the musical had as a main concern. She said the production team worked hard to translate the script into English. And actually, audience members in New York said it was beautiful and key scenes were met with applause. So it seems like it's had a good start so far. Yes, it certainly does sound uh, interesting and perhaps it could be another uh, milestone in Korean musical history on Broadway, but I guess we'll see. Uh, We'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for bringing us to Stroh Richard and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that does it for our show today. Thank you for staying with us. Do join us again tomorrow to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio. KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow in the case of a cold snap. Ensure to keep your home warm, especially if you have children, elderly family members or patients living with you. Those who have high blood pressure or weak heart conditions must warm up exposed parts of their bodies, especially their heads. If you experience extreme chills, fatigue, slurred speech, loss of memory or sense of direction, visit a hospital immediately as these are symptoms of hypothermia. If you experience numbness or paleness in your hands, feet, ears, nose or any tip of your body, this could be frostbite. Take a warm shower. If the symptoms persist, go to the hospital. If you plan on exercising, make sure you stretch sufficiently to avoid injuring your joints. If you plan on leaving your house empty for a long time, leave your taps running slightly to prevent the pipes from freezing. Please check our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures.
Yeah. 